Our God and our Father, we thank you for your kindness and the way in which you answer our prayers, Lord. We thank you for the way in which you brought a relationship between our church and Pastor Ferrari many years ago and for the church that is there in Milan now uh, that is confessing the truth, that is healthy. We thank you for answering our prayers, Lord, about uh, church plants and establishing uh, a a federation of churches that will make disciples of Jesus Christ and worship you according to your word. We pray for that land. We thank you for bringing Vincenzo here. We thank you for raising him up, for hearing our prayers all these years, and for setting him before us as evidence that you do answer prayer. We pray for him, his fears, Lord, of learning English sufficiently. May you remove those fears. May you equip him, Lord, that he would be able to communicate as he desires. May he find himself reliant upon you and and knowing that you are the God who is good. We pray that you would provide all the funds necessary and that you would bring him here next year so that he can begin a course of study and return to Italy as a man equipped and ready to divide your word of truth rightly and to do so with a clear conscience and to do so with the blessing and sending of your church. So help our brother, Lord, be with him tomorrow as he flies home and watch over the church there in Turin, we pray. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Divine. Did great. Uh, Vincenzo will be here also this evening, and uh, you can get an email from him if you like, if you want to keep up any correspondence with him. But uh, indeed, he is answered prayer and the work that's uh, going on there. Okay, we've got about uh, 25 minutes to talk about the next thing in our study of the two natures of Christ. So, what have we, what have we learned so far? Uh, we, we talked about the divinity of Christ, that, that Christ is fully divine, and we went through lots of passages that speak plainly about Jesus of Nazareth being God. The Bible is very plain that he is God, and that's important for us to understand. He's not merely a man, he is also God. It's hard for us to get our minds around that and to comprehend how can he be both God and man. But in fact, the Bible reveals him as God. Uh, So there's no other Jesus than the one who is fully God. He's fully divine. And there was a council in church history that, what we call an ecumenical council, ecumenical meaning uh, at that time in church history, it was all the churches from east and west. It wasn't just a particular group of churches. Uh, the Council of Nicaea, from which we get the Nicene Creed, as we confessed, and that was in 325, the year 325 A.D. And it was there that there was a, uh, there was a heresy taught by one called Arius, a pastor <clears throat> who had in trying to understand the two natures of Christ, said that Jesus was not, the Son of God was not eternal, that there was a time when the Son of God did not exist. He took the the, the word only begotten Son to essentially mean that there was a time in in eternity past when the Son came into being and and that that he is not fully God in the sense of being fully eternal. In order to be fully God, you have to possess all, every one of God's attributes, and uh, this was not one. So that heresy, heresy means false teaching uh, that was condemned by the church, uh, was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. 
Arianism, the belief that Jesus is not God, continued. I mean, it spread around the church, and it's around today. Uh, When you have Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons uh, come to your door, or when they encourage you to pray along with them at uh, the National Day of Prayer, no matter how good the prayer may be, you cannot, if you are a Christian, pray with a Mormon, because they do not believe in the same God as you. It It has nothing to do with how nice they are and how you feel in your heart. You have no right whatsoever to pray with somebody who is not to, to call upon God through two different mediators. Because the Mormon's mediator is not a God man. It's not the same mediator as of the Bible. And so a Christian cannot join in prayer. It does not matter what the cause is. Doesn't matter if it's uh, your the, the most important thing in the world. You cannot join in prayer because you have a different mediator. You, you could just, you can no more pray with Glenn Beck than you can with uh, a, a Muslim. And we need to embrace that. Otherwise, we're saying Jesus is, there's more mediators than Jesus. We have no right to call upon God. And so we have to understand that that, that heresy is still floating around today, guys. And uh, the devil wants us to be soft on it. And uh, we, we can't be soft on something that's, a, that's false teaching. So later, there was another council that deals with the other nature, the, the Council of Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, in 381, not long after. And this dealt with Apollinarianism. Big old word. And uh, Polinarius was uh, actually a champion for orthodoxy against Arius and Arius's teachings, and believed firmly in the divinity of Christ. Believed also that Jesus was full, was human. But in trying to understand how humanity and divinity come together, he uh, came up with a very sophisticated concept of, well, uh, Jesus had a full human body, but didn't have a soul like we have, which is our, in, which is our animate, immaterial being. You, everybody is body and soul made of two parts. Uh, your body is, who, is your identity, who you are, uh, apart from your soul. Your soul is who you are, apart from your body. You need both to be alive. At death, they separate. In the resurrection, they come back together. Polinarius taught that the God-man, that the divinity took up residence within a body, but uh, it it had no human soul. And uh, it was the Cappadocian fathers, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil the Great, who had, uh, at the Council of Constantinople, uh, argued against Apollinarianism. Uh, saying that, no, what, what Jesus did not assume, what the Son of God did not assume, he cannot redeem. In other words, unless he is fully human, body and soul, he cannot redeem body and soul. So this, is, this stuff actually matters. If, you know, if, if, if the Son of God was not fully human, the kind of human that has to be born, that has to uh, eat, has to go to the bathroom, uh, all of that, he cannot redeem humans because uh, the same human nature which has sinned against God must make payment for God and satisfy his justice. That's why the Son of God 
had to assume a real human body, body and soul, and continues with the real human body. I meet a lot of Christians who think that the Son of God is no longer, any, no longer has a human body. He will forever have a human body. That's part of the great sacrifice that he made forever and ever and ever, and you will look upon him. You will see him face to face. Uh, the Father doesn't have a face, nor does the Holy Spirit, but the Son does. He has an eye color. He has a, no, he has a nose. He has facial features. We don't know what that looks like, and we shouldn't try to make images of what we think that might look like, uh, which are, are never uh, allowed, but uh, we're waiting. That's the beatific vision that we're longing for and waiting to see is, the, is, the, is God in flesh. Uh, in the person, the person of Jesus Christ. Well, uh, things after that uh, were all settled, and there were no more controversies ever about the uh, two natures of Christ. Right? Um, of course not. There's, you know, the church history is filled with uh, different arguments, different debates, and the reason why it's good for us to study these things and to know them. Um, why? Why do you think we? I was having this conversation on Sunday evening with someone. Why do you think it's good for us to study? Church history. Why do, why do you think? Okay. We see where the practices come from. But what else? I mean, as you're thinking about, uh, I think I told you that I came up with this idea when I was a new Christian. I mean, I wasn't the one who invented it, but I came up with the idea on my own. When as I was trying to think, okay, how can Jesus be fully God and fully human? And I thought, well, maybe. And it was because I had a pastor who took out a glove during a sermon and said, you know, like, this is the body of Christ, you know, his human body. And the Son of God was like a hand, and it came and it took on the glove. And, you know, he said, and it became alive. And you might think, you know, what's the big deal? What's the problem? That glove's not fully human. It doesn't have a soul. If the glove doesn't have, if the, if the body doesn't have a soul, it's not human. If he's not human, he can't save me. If he hasn't saved me, I'm doomed. Ideas have consequences. Who is Jesus? Who is it that you're banking on for your eternal salvation? You're going to breathe your last one day. And there's going to be nobody there to cross death's door with you except you. The only one who's going to receive you is Jesus. Who is he? Who is he? This is more important than your retirement fund. This is more important than your bank account. This is more important than anything, any insurance policy you have. Who is he? You got the right one. Glenn Beck doesn't have the right one. He's got the wrong one. Who do you have? Because the one of the Bible, the one that's confessed in the ancient creeds, is fully human and fully divine. When we say fully human, we mean his body and soul. So it's very important that we, we do justice to his humanity. That's why I, as a pastor who have been called to protect sheep, get fussy about uh, songs that have some kind of Apollinarianism or adoptionism in them. Like the lines, you know, no crying, he makes the... Li-. It's, you know what? It's, we should have a problem with that. Or Silent Night, I love Silent Night, but the one line in there, radiant beams from thy holy face. There were no radiant beams from his holy face. He wasn't, that's that's an alien. That's not human. And he was fully human. It was messy. There was crying. 
He wasn't a sinner, but he's human. And sometimes we get this idea like that Jesus floated everywhere he went. And he had a halo, you know, and we have to understand he's fully human. He ate. Okay, well, we understand he's human. He's divine. How do we understand these two things together? Uh, how, how, does, how do they, uh, how do they uh, mesh? And what's the significance? So Jesus is fully human, fully divine. That had been established in church history. Now, h- how do we understand those two things together? Typically, and as we see from church history we go into one of two bad directions. One direction is where we, we think of the two natures, human and divine, of being so separate, it's like two separate persons. And there's a name for that, and it was condemned at a council. Or we think of the two natures uh, so together at once that it's like one nature. And that's also a heresy which was condemned at an ancient council. Um, the councils, in this case, were the Council of Ephesus at 431 against a guy named Nestorius. Notorious Nestorius. He actually was a decent guy, like so many of them. We're, we're decent guys. That's something that's really important to understand, is that heretics, they're not, as you read church history, they're not thinking, okay, how can I go out and destroy the church? They're acting in the interest of truth. They are hoping to bring clarity to something that is unclear. And they always think they're right, which is why we need a collective body. You can't, if you have one guy in the corner saying, I'm right, and everybody else saying, well, hold on, let's look at Scripture, let's look at everything else. Um, and, uh, and it's ruled. Now, it's pretty clear what Scripture is, is, is uh, revealing. Then, uh, and it's been confessed by the historic Christian church. We have to go with that. Um, so what happened here? Council of Ephesus 431, Nestorius. Um, today I'm just going to talk a little bit about him, and then we're going to look at why this is important. Why, why does it matter that we understand the two natures of Christ and what difference it makes? Nestorius was somebody who had a problem with the saying, Mary is the mother of God. In Greek, the word is theotokos. So let me ask you this morning. Does that, does that phrase bother you? Mary, the mother of God. Okay. And who is Jesus, Yolanda? Therefore, right, you are orthodox. Well done. Yeah. I know, we say, wait, 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 hold on a second here. God can't be born. He can't. He's divinity. He can't be born. But Jesus was born in his humanity. Right. But who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is God. But God can't be born. Right. But here's the thing. The humanity of Jesus can never be separated from the divinity. The divinity exceeds the bounds of his humanity. As we said, the divinity, God, 
in his divine nature is uh, omnipresent everywhere at once. But Jesus in his humanity, okay, or we could say the Son of God in his humanity, can only be in one place at one time. Yeah. But Jesus is God. There's not God and Jesus. Jesus Christ is both God and man, but he has two natures. And his divine nature exceeds the bounds of his humanity. Everybody open up that, conf- uh, uh, that blue Psalter hymnal because the confession that you confess, if you're a member of Christ URC, your confession, this is your confession. You stood and took vows to this confession. It says exactly this. So look at uh, Article 18. I believe it's 18. <clears throat> and it's a good confession. Oh, they're in Roman numerals, which are always a little tricky, right? Um, let's see. One X, one V, and three I's. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and then, ooh, 19. The union and distinction of the two natures and the person of Christ. Good stuff. Yeah, let's look at these real quick. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. We confess. It's on page 77 in the back of the Psalter hymnal. The, the Incarnation of Jesus Christ, Article uh, 18. We confess, therefore, that God has fulfilled the promise which he made to the fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent into the world at the time appointed by him his only begotten, son and eternal, only begotten and eternal Son, who took upon him the form of a servant and became like unto man, really assuming the true human nature with all its infirmities, sin accepted, being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without the means of man and did not only assume human nature as to the body but also a true human soul. What what heresy is it combating right there? Paulinarianism, yeah. Makes my heart go pitter-patter when I hear Christians recognizing uh, what false teachings are. That's precisely what it's doing. Okay, So we need to know these things. Uh, that he might be a real man. You can't be a real man unless your body and soul. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he should take both upon him to save both. Okay, That was the language of the Cappadocian fathers. Okay, This is a reformed creed from the 16th century. But what those brilliant and humble men were doing was drawing upon not only Scripture, but upon the creeds and the theology of the ancient church. They were not inventing things. So they knew the church fathers. Therefore, we confess in opposition to the heresy of the Anabaptists. Now, the reason they're bringing that up is because that was who they were combating in their day, not just Rome, but the Anabaptists which today, sadly, are like a lot of modern evangelicals, um, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of the children, that he is a fruit of the loins of David after the flesh, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, a fruit of the womb of Mary, born of a woman, a branch of David, shoot of the root of Jesse, sprung from the tribe of Judah, descended from the Jews according to the flesh of the seed of Abraham, 
since he took on him the seed of Abraham and was made like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted, so that in truth he is our Emmanuel, that is to say, God with us. Now look at the next one. The union and distinction of the two natures in the person of Christ. We believe that by this conception, the person of the Son is inseparably united and connected with the human nature so that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in one single person. Okay, now what they're combating here is this. Nestorianism. Nestorius, he did not like the phrase, Mary the mother of God. And he said, just say, Mary the mother of Jesus. And there was a lot of background behind the debate. This guy, Cyril, who, there was a lot of it was political. But at the end of the day, the theological thing we need to remember is that Jesus has two natures. Or Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has two natures. He is eternally and fully God, and since 2,000 years ago, he is fully human, body and soul. And those two natures cannot be separated. The divine nature can exceed the bounds of the human nature. So the divine nature fills all things. It fills all of the universe. The human nature was dependent upon things. He was dependent upon his mother and the umbilical cord that he was connected to in her womb. He was dependent to have his diapers changed, to, have, to be fed. He didn't come out speaking Aramaic or Hebrew. He had to learn grammar. He had to grow in stature. He was a real human. He had to learn things. He learned how to be a carpenter from his father. But he never, he never failed. He never sinned. He never deviated. But what we, so what we have to understand is that what we can affirm, now this is, the, this is the key, what we can affirm about one nature, either human or divine, you can say in language of the whole person because the two natures can't be separated. So it's not wrong to say, marry the mother of God, fully understanding that the divinity cannot be born but the humanity is born, but the humanity was never separated from the divinity. Same thing when we sing, uh, for example, that hymn, uh, uh, that thou my God. All right, one person uh, that, that, that has died for me. Can you sing that with a clear conscience? That thou my God has died for me, but God cannot die. Did God die on the cross? Well, you, you say, well, it depends on what you mean. <laughs> it depends on what you mean. Uh, obviously, or it should be obvious, God cannot die. It's impossible for him not to be. He is God. Humanity can die. A human being can expire. And he did on the cross. However, because we can say that The Son of God in his humanity died. Well, it's it's perfectly orthodox to affirm about the whole person, okay, uh, the death of God upon the cross. Because the two cannot be separated, even though in his divinity he was not 
killed. This is very important. This was the whole point at the Council of Ephesus. Okay? Because Nestorius was trying to separate the two. And this is precisely what we're picking up on here in, the, in our Confession of Faith. And Westminster does the exact same thing in the Westminster Confession. Um, As then, the divine nature has always remained uncreated without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth, so also has the human nature not lost its properties, but remained a creature having beginning of days, being a finite nature and retaining all of the properties of a real body. And though he has, by his resurrection, given immortality to the same, nevertheless, he has not changed the reality of his human nature, for as much as our salvation and resurrection also depend on the reality of his body. But these two natures, notice this, guys, are so closely united in one person that they were not separated even by his death. Therefore, That which he, when dying, commended into the hands of his father was a real human spirit departing from his body. But in the meantime, the divine nature always remained united with the human, even when he lay in the grave, and the Godhead did not cease to be in him any more than it did when he was an infant, though it did not so clearly manifest itself for a while Wherefore, we confess that he is very God and very man. What creed does that come from? Very God and very man. The Nicene Creed. We said it, yeah, we said it this morning. Very God by his power to conquer death and very man that he might die for us according to the infirmity of his flesh. So, uh, it's, what, the, what we're doing here in the Belgic, what they were doing in the Reformation, was picking up on, the, on all three of these heresies, and actually four heresies, Eutyches, which we'll hit on next week, um, showing that he is fully divine, fully human, and that the two natures, uh, they are always united, yet the divinity exceeds the bounds of the humanity. Now, next week, we'll talk about how this uh, affects our understanding of communion, because it totally does. How is it that we, how is it that we uh, uh, commune with God or with Christ in the Lord's Supper? And how do we come to our understanding of the Lord's Supper? It has everything to do with this. Um, and this is where we and, and Lutherans and Catholics disagree a bit. And uh, so next week we'll, we'll look at how uh, understanding those two natures has bearing uh, upon those things. Any questions? Angela. Well, I mean, the snarky thing to say, I guess, which is very out of character of me, uh, is to say, um, you know, that they, they just don't care about history. And it's true. And, and the sad thing is, is that I think as an American culture, we tend to not care that much about history. We, we're, pretty, we're pretty bad at history. I mean, we're a young nation. 
and, uh, and we don't really know history very well. And, and, and I think that carries over into the American evangelical. Um, you know, oh, it's all Rome. I mean, if you even, if, most of them probably couldn't even tell you. That. I didn't know them growing up. The first time I heard about the Nicene Creed or the Nicene Council was from a Jehovah's Witness that told me that's where the, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity was invented. And it was the next day I actually went out and bought a, a church history book, my first one, and began to study. We need to know history. And the reason why, guys, is because if we don't know, we will try to reinvent the wheel. And as Dr. Godfrey always taught us, it rarely comes out round. I mean, what's the old adage? If you don't know history, what's that? You're, yeah, you're going to repeat it. This is, I mean, this is why if you go to the United States Military Academy, you've got to learn about all, everything we've learned in all of our battles, all of our warfare. We didn't get to where we're at today by not studying our mistakes from the past and things that have gone wrong. And each time things go wrong, you learn, you adjust, you regroup. The same thing happens in theology. Heresy comes around, whoa, what is this? You look at it, you examine, you tighten up the language. But we don't do that as individuals. We have to do that as the church. This is why we have synods. This is why we have uh, classes. This is why we have councils. But yeah, the Calvary Chapel people, you're not going to get that. There's, you know, if church history is there's the apostles, and then there was the 1960s and the Jesus people movement. And everything else in between doesn't really, everything else was dead, dead orthodoxy. You go to one of those dead churches, which means you don't have guitars that plug in. Uh, that's what a dead church is. Uh, when, in fact, a spirit-filled church is a church that is proclaiming Christ because Christ said the Holy Spirit would not testify of himself but would testify of me. And so it's amazing to me, and I'm really getting upset here, but it's amazing to me that you have a whole movement. Watch how good I can draw this bad boy. Okay. What's wrong with that? What's, what's wrong with that symbol? It's pointing to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't testify of himself. The Holy Spirit testifies of Christ. John 14, 15, 16, Jesus says when he comes, he will not testify of himself. He will testify of me. And so when Peter stands up, what does he do? He preaches a sermon about Jesus of Nazareth being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And that's what you get in every sermon in Acts. Not a story about myself or a testimony. Not some, you know. And so... Our whole idea of what it means to be a Christian gets disconnected from history. When, in fact, the, the Christian faith is a historical faith. It's about an event in history. It's about something that happened that has saved me. And so, you know, this stuff is, yeah, they might love Jesus and, and love the Bible, but ultimately it's a different religion at the end of the day when it points you back to you and your experience instead of events that have happened in history and events that we're looking forward to in the future. That is the Christian faith. And it's confessed. And, if, and see, you noticed how in Articles uh, 18 and 19 there, in the Belgic Confession, they were, he, they were drawing upon these things. All the language is from these four ancient ecumenical councils. And yet we being, you know, so removed from all, or not really caring about history, just caring about our own experience... We don't even recognize it. When we, when we read those confessions, it doesn't even stand out to us because we, we didn't realize the things that have happened in history. So it isn't, this is why we have Sunday school. 
This is why we, we're here. And that's why you're learning. And now you do know. And now you're better for it. Now you're growing and maturing, just as I am. Aren't you glad you came? Aren't you glad you stayed? See, you're being equipped. Okay, well, we got we to end because surely the children have released the crack. And, and so let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this time to learn and to grow and to learn about things that have happened in history. Help us, O oh Lord, from being chronologically snobby and thinking that we have it all figured out for ourselves, Lord. Help us to learn from the past. Help us, Lord, to learn from those whom you have sent before us and help us to, Lord, be humble as we uh, discuss the faith and confess the faith. And may we do so with joy and with uh, the, the deep conviction, Lord, that these are the truths that you have revealed in your word. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.